Thank you very much, Roger. Good morning to you and good morning world as we once again come together for our weekly visit, a look at the most basic industry on the planet, agriculture, producing food and fiber and uh, now energy for the world with our uh, biofuel industry. So we like to talk about that and we like to remind you that uh, Food does not originate in the supermarket. It originates on farms and ranches all across America. As I mentioned earlier, uh, for the next few weeks, I'll be working with doctors at Mayo, and uh, they'll be doing some work on my back. So we'll be coming to you from WGN West in Scottsdale, Arizona, where the desert is cooling down just a little bit, too. The... uh, Temperature this morning here in Scottsdale, 69 degrees, and that's cool for the desert this time of the year. But as Roger mentioned in the newscast, great deal of concern about wildfires because the monsoon season in Arizona, that's uh, generally during the mid to late summer, the desert gets a fair amount of rain. Didn't get much rain this year, and so there is concern for ranchers about having pasture grass and uh, feed for cattle particularly. And so we'll be talking about that as we talk to farmers and agricultural producers here in the Valley of the Sun in Arizona. But uh, it's another sign of summer coming to an end as... uh, we hear from Matt every year when Jim Fazell makes his final appearance of the season. That means summer is over, and uh, today it'll be his next-to-last report on gardening and trees and lawns and flowers and everything else here on the Saturday morning show. So I guess summer is coming to an end, and and the weather is certainly reminding us of that this morning. But good to have you along with us, and uh, we have some interesting people to talk to. And, of course, Jim is the first one that we'll check in with, and we'll do that when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. Continuing on our audio tour of Pioneer Product Development, today I'm at the Napoleon Soybean Research Center in Northwest Ohio. There are four large structures, and, of course, the field around it. I'm in the field now, under an umbrella. I don't mind getting wet, but we've got recording equipment to worry about. Weather, soil conditions, diseases, pests, every location is different. Which is exactly why Pioneer built this center and almost 50 like it all over the country. In fact, Pioneer has the most extensive soybean breeding and testing program in the industry. This allows Pioneer to develop varieties for just about every local condition. The Soybean Research Center in Napoleon. Another place that makes Pioneer, Pioneer. You'll hear more from me later. For now, let your local Pioneer sales representative hear from you. Oh, the marvels of technology. Jim Fazell in Park Ridge, Illinois. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. And all of this is coming together like we're sitting in the same room. So good morning to you, Jim. Well, good morning, Orion. It's good to visit with you. I understand that the weather is really uh, nasty out there. It's only, what, summertime, full summer? (laughs) Yeah, it's only 90 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. 
And here we sit in uh, winter kind of weather after a marvelous, we had a marvelous week until near the end of the week, and then it's deteriorated something horrible. Uh, kind of reminds me of James, James Whitcomb Riley's thing about the uh, feeling kind of hearty-like out in the atmosphere. Now the heat of summer is over and the cool of fall is here. It's here. <laughs> it indeed is. So what are we doing outdoors now before it well, freezes? Well, I want to just to mention that um, with the cool weather and, and some moisture, it's the last chance you're going to have to make lawn repairs. We talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. But if you've been putting it off, scratch up the dead areas in your lawn and sow some seed now. Uh, 50-50 Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass works very well. Then cover it up with a mat or straw. Get some water on so it starts quickly. Um, if you do that, there's still time for it to grow and survive the winter, and in the spring it'll just take off and grow for you, and you'll be in good shape. You won't have to redo it. Uh, also, the long-range forecast for the next few months suggests it's going to start off a little bit cool and wet, but with an extended fall. So get a start on your fall chores now so you won't be caught off guard in case things do deteriorate early. But what I really want to talk about today is pumpkins. You know, every year about this time we get some questions, perennial questions, I guess is what you'd say. Uh, how do pumpkins, are, are pumpkins fruit or vegetable? Uh, is it a pumpkin or a squash? Uh, and then how do geraniums, how can you keep them over? They've been really nice this year. Well, the questions have started to arrive already. Every time we go to the farmer's markets, we get more questions. And uh now, we enjoy that, of course, and we like to be able to answer them for people. I hope some of you folks that asked are listening this morning. Anyway, the roadside stands and the community pumpkin patches are loaded right now. The question is, are they fruits or vegetables? The answer is yes. <laughs> That's okay. not to say things like that, but it's true. Botanically, uh, these are the fruit of the vine plant. I'm not talking about grapes. I'm talking about the squash vine. Uh, because they have seeds in them, they're the fruit. However, they're used as vegetables in the culinary field because they aren't sweet. At least most of them aren't sweet. So they're both. They're botanically fruit, culinary, vegetables. Then are they pumpkin or squash? Well, both are vine crops. Both the the, uh, squash and pumpkins come off the vines. Uh, vines include things like the cucumbers and muskmelons and so forth. And there are two kinds of squashes, summer and winter squash. The summer squashes are ones, uh, in fact, they're the family cucurbita pipo, if that's of interest to anybody. And these are harvested immature. They're harvested before the, the skins get hard. You can take your thumbnail and scratch them and it scratches off. Zucchini, patty pan, straight or crooked neck, and acorn squash. Of course, acorn squash can be grown as a winter squash as well. You let it completely harden off, and it'll store very nicely. And in addition to that, on these summer squashes are the standard orange pumpkins. These would be like New England pie pumpkin, which is a small five-pounder. The jack-o'-lanterns, which are between 10 and 15 pounds. Now, a lot of what we find in the in the pumpkin patches are the Connecticut field or Howden field pumpkins. And these are the ones that are in the 15 to 25 or even 30-pound category that people really like to get for carving. And the exotic pumpkins like uh, the Cinderella uh, coach pumpkins and so forth are in that category. Then we have the winter squash. This is cucurbita moshata, harvested when they're mature, including things like butternut and acorn squash and commercial pumpkins. Commercial pumpkins, the ones that you get in the can at the supermarket, are Dickinson Field or buckskin um, pumpkins, which are grown for the pulp, not for jack-o'-lanterns, and they're brown. They're not orange. They look like big 
nasty-looking footballs out in the field. Uh, they're not something you'd want to take and carve for, for your uh, Halloween jack-o'-lantern. Then we have the big winter squash, which are cucurbita maxima. And this would be things like Hubbard squash. Many of us are familiar with that. And the giant pumpkins. These are the pumpkins of the biggest pumpkin contests. Now, incidentally, these this is where you have a little bit of a mix-up in whether it's a, a squash or a pumpkin. Uh, if it's green, and a lot of them are big, and they go to the contest, but they haven't ripened yet, they're considered squash, so they can weigh them anyway. If they've turned yellow, they're considered pumpkins. And varieties would be things like Big Macs or Atlantic Giant. But actually, the people that grow these for competition – collect their own seed, they do some hybridizing and so forth to get the biggest pumpkins. And actually, if you look at the kinds of pumpkins across the country and see what the records are, uh, especially in New England where they do a good job of this, there are some pumpkins that come in for weighing that weigh up to three-quarters of a ton. That's a big pumpkin. Certainly wouldn't want to use it for carving. But for carving, the people makes a good one. That's the little one, the pie pumpkin. You can paint them, and if you don't cut them up, you can just wash the paint off or peel them, and you can use those for pies as well. And for cooking, you can use the, the regular uh, pie pumpkins or squash pumpkins. But Hubbard squash makes excellent pumpkin pie, probably as good as any. It's kind of a creamy pumpkin, uh, creamy uh, pulp that you get from it works very well. So they're squash unless you call them pumpkins. What can I say? Okay. Winter squash will keep until spring, by the way, so you don't need to be afraid to get some of them if you get out to the to the farmers markets or out to the country. The quality is excellent this year; they've hardened off very nicely, and they'll keep all all the way till spring if you've got a cool, dry place to keep them. Next question: geraniums. How do you keep them over? Uh, they've been particularly nice this year, as a matter of fact. Uh, most of the garden annuals have, have worked very well. So we have a lot of people asking, what can I do with these? I don't want to throw them away. Three ways. You can keep the whole plant. You need to dig a plant that has no diseases or insects on it. You need to cut it back so it's uh, symmetrical, actually. Pot it up. Shake all the soil off. Pot it up in a pot that's about the right size for the amount of roots that you have using one of the light potting mixes. Don't use garden soil to do that. We talked about that in the past about what you do to mix your own if you want to do that as well. Prune them to shape and size and set them in a bright, cool place indoors. Um, or you can take cuttings. If you have ones that are growing vigorously out in the garden, go collect some cuttings from them from the most healthy, clean plants. Root these in sand and peat moss, pot up the cuttings after you've rooted, and you can grow them in the bright, bright, cool place indoors. And usually for doing this, you need some kind of a plant light setup. There are all kinds of those that you can get or that you can make. Or if you have a green, they, greenhouse, they work very well. The one that's time-honored and grandma's time-honored way, as a matter of fact, is you pull up the best plants. You shake the soil from the roots, cut back the top so they'll fit into brown paper bags upside down. You stuff them in the paper bag, hang, hang them in a cool, dark place from the winter. In spring, you'll rescue them, and that's, that's true. You have to rescue them. Cut off the dried, dead parts, pot them up, grow them in a nice pot until it's safe to set them outdoors. Actually, you can bring other annual flowers and herbs in as well, and we've talked about them in the past. So that's how you do it. There are three choices. Uh, my, the way I do it. I get rid of them, and I buy new ones next year. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't go through all the trouble. Uh, the next three weekends are your last chance to get to the community farmer markets and the pumpkin farms because they'll all close after Halloween. And next week we're going to begin finishing up the garden year. We'll have a couple of more weeks to talk about that, and then our season will be done as well. 
And, of course, we'll get final advice to keep a journal and a map of what you plant and where you plant it, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that. All right. Well, good to visit with you from uh, two different parts of the country this week, and we look forward to a visit a week from now with our specialist in ornamental horticulture here at WGN Radio, Jim Fazell, with us on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, it's 18 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show, a chilly morning in parts of the Midwest, but it may get even cooler before we know it, so uh, enjoy what's going on. We, of course, uh, spent time at the World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin last week and visited with quite a few people, including a lady that we visit with every year to check on the hay crop. We'll talk to the immediate past president of the National Hay Association, Amy Freeberg, when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. Nearly every day, someone asks me, Walter, are those invisible lyric hearing aids from the Hearing Health Center really as good as you say they are? Well, let me tell you, I'd like to be able to put my hearing aids into your ears so you can experience what it's like to hear normally again. You can't feel them. You don't think about them. You don't even know they're there. You wear them day and night, up to months at a time, without ever taking them out, even to change the batteries. Well, right now, with this special offer, I don't have to give you my lyrics. You can try your own for 30 days, risk-free. Call 833-GO-HEARING for a free hearing checkup in Chicago, Naperville, Oak Brook, or Highland Park. So don't just listen to me. Call 833-GO-HEARING now. That's 833-GO-HEARING now. Or go to WGNHearing.com and find out for yourself. Let's make hay. We do it every year at World Dairy Expo. And we talk to Amy Freeberg from South Dakota, the immediate past president of the National Hay Association. Good turnout for you so far here at World Dairy Expo? You know, a really good turnout. Of course, yesterday all the youngsters were here. It's kind of the FFA kids and the judging teams from the colleges. But you know what? It's been a really good crowd. I don't know if that's because of all the rain and it's brought the people into the buildings. But yeah, it's been a good crowd. So it was a challenging year for corn producers and soybean producers and a lot of other producers. How was it for hay producers? You know, it was no less challenging for us. It was just a really difficult year. We thought last year in 2018 that that was our difficult year, and we were really happy for that year to go away, but 19 just turned out to be even worse for us. We kind of came into the year with a lot of, already a lot of water in our ground. Um, The Missouri River bottom where we farm is very, very wet. We had the polar vortex, and then behind that we had that three and a half inches of rain on frozen ground that had nowhere to go, and that caused all sorts of floodings and just and so much structural, um, just so much structural things happened with the roads and the ditches, and then we went into this year and winter kill. You know, between the flooding and the winter kill, our particular company went from 2,500 acres down to less than 300. So it was difficult. It was really difficult. Well, now you just 
concluded the annual meeting how many years? 124 for the National Hay Association. So this next year will be in our 125th year, and we've met annually every year with the exception of two years during World War II. So we're very proud of that. You should be. That's a long time for an organization such as yours to be around. So looking ahead, what do you see price-wise for hay in the coming year with the challenge we had this year? Yeah, we went into this year in the spring of this year and just really cleaned out the stock. You know, sometimes you have carryover. We were scrambling for hay uh, even in April and then May for sure coming into the new year. Then, of course, you know, it just won't quit raining. And it's not just here. I mean, we've, there's a big part of the United States that's just had plenty of moisture. And, of course, that's impact quality for sure. Um, I, I believe we're going to be scrambling again, and we'll scramble probably in February and March instead of April and May. I'm just hoping that all the fields that got planted transition and that they don't winter kill. That would be my hope, and then we could kind of take off next year. But, you know, they're going to feed what we have. And it might not be that 180 relative feed value, which would be their choice, but they might be feeding the 140 to 150. The key is going to have to be it's going to be dry. What about the export market? Still doing well? The export market seems to be doing fine. They've found some new places to send hay, um, less to China, just because of the restrictions. But that market was kind of pulling back anyway. Um, India is a new market that they're working on. Japan, Vietnam, yeah, they, Dubai. I mean, they're sending hay out of the country. The only thing I heard from those folks is that there seems to be more Timothy in the Northwest, but Timothy is so expensive, we can't hardly afford to bring it back to the Midwest and distribute it from here. But there seems to be plenty of Timothy out there. Timothy more expensive than alfalfa? Absolutely. Timothy is an expensive crop. It is. Never realized that because all I've heard, you got to get good alfalfa if you're going to have good quality hay. You do. And, and that's, of course, what we specialize in where we live. And we're just looking forward to, I guess that's the optimism of a farmer, but we're just looking forward to, you know, more really nice hay growing years. And we need the weather to kind of settle. And it will. It always does. Always does. Thank you, Amy. And give my regards to retired Don Keeper, if you would, please. I'll do it. Okay. Amy Freeberg, immediate past president of the National Hay Association at World Dairy Expo. Well, it's good to have you along with us on this Saturday morning. And uh, before we hit the 530 news headlines, a little more talk about World Dairy Expo. Because a week ago, we didn't have some of the final numbers, and it again this year proved it is an important show for the dairy industry around the world. Some of the numbers. Total attendance this year at World Dairy Expo, 62,240 people. And where did they come from? Well, number one, of course, was the United States. But then Canada, number two, Mexico, number three, Italy, Italy, number four, China, number five, and Brazil and Japan tied for number six. The uh, role in the industry by those attending, 34% were farmers, 43% industry people, 10% were students. And in the trade show, 
859 participating companies representing 28 countries, 6 Canadian provinces, and 41 states from the United States. New participating companies at the exhibit show, 97 this year, so a pretty good turnout. And then what about cattle, because that's what it's all about. Well, the leading breed, of course, as always, Holsteins, 596 Holstein entries. Ayrshire, 262 entries. Brown Swiss, 319 entries in the shows and 203 Guernseys. Jerseys numbered 391, Milking Shorthorns 206, and Red and White, well, I call them Red and White Holsteins, but uh, they are Red and Whites now is what they're known at. And uh, what about the number of cattle that were on the grounds? 2,331 cattle housed on the grounds at World Dairy Expo. Dairy cattle exhibitor numbers, 1,642, representing 34 states and 7 Canadian provinces. And we don't bring them in from other countries anymore because of the concern about livestock disease and the threat of uh, spreading that livestock disease. So all in all, oh, and there were 223 people like me, media. So rest assured, if you're in the dairy industry, the media is there. 223 reporters from print and radio and television to report on the activities. So it's a good show for the dairy industry, and uh, we enjoy the opportunity to be there every year for a lot of years, and they're already making plans for next year's show. That will get underway in late September and end in early October. So make your plans now for heading to Madison next year for the World Dairy Expo. Well, probably one of the biggest news stories of the year that will impact agriculture The uh, agreement reached in Washington, D.C. to uh, kind of slow down the ongoing tariff war that we've had with China. I'll talk about that a little bit later on what was agreed to yesterday and uh, then look ahead to how much more we can expect in that negotiating session. So... Thank you for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show, and we're at the news headlines, Mark. Time to check in again with Roger Badish for news headlines. Right, we're ready to go to work for the second half hour of the Saturday Morning Show. Good to have all of you along with us this morning as we see the signs of fall showing up on the thermometer and uh, even in the desert here in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona. Temperatures are below normal right now, 68 degrees, and that's kind of cool in the desert for this time of the year. But a lot going on agriculturally here in the valley uh, where they do milk quite a few dairy cows and they do raise beef cattle and even a few hogs, but not too many are hogs raised in Arizona. But uh, we'll be checking in with that, and right now it's time for Samuelson Says. 
I'm Orion, and we're still waiting for an agreement on NAFTA number two. While we continue to keep U.S.-China trade talks on the front burner, there is another very important trade agreement debate that's not getting much encouragement in Congress. It's what I call NAFTA II, or the Canada-Mexico-U.S. Trade Agreement. It needs congressional approval, and it keeps running into roadblocks. Here is the latest. The head of the AFL-CIO labor union, not ready to approve the agreement, which has already been approved by the governments in Canada and Mexico. But let me quote this story. Richard Trumka is the labor union leader, said this week he is especially concerned about labor protection measures in Mexico and added that any vote on the plan before the end of November would lead to its defeat. His quote, if there was a vote on the new NAFTA before Thanksgiving, the agreement would be defeated. Fast action would be a colossal mistake. His concerns include reservations that Mexico might not make necessary changes to ensure labor reforms or adequately fund enforcement mechanisms. And he said if they can't enforce their own laws, then we have a real problem. Well, I just want to remind the labor union leader that uh, agriculture has been having a problem as well, waiting for endorsement for formalizing of the new Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. And right now, producers are making plans for acreage and crops to be planted in 2020, and they need to have a level playing field in the trade community so they know what they're dealing with. But we're not getting action in Congress on Capitol Hill. And they have to approve before we move on. But the uh, comments from the labor union leader uh, echoed concerns from House Democrats, which must pass the deal. And a top Democratic lawmaker who led a delegation to Mexico this week said Mexico must do more to implement labor reforms. Uh, The president and congressional Republicans and several key business groups have been pressuring House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to take up the measure before the Thanksgiving holiday in late November. And uh, the speaker said in a letter to House Democrats this week, they would, quote, continue our discussion of the USMCA. But it's time to quit discussing and do passing so the trade agreement that was so beneficial to farmers in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico since it was born back in the late 1990s so that we can get it updated and know what we're dealing with in the world trading community. Let's get it done. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. 22 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. Oh, I just want to make note of something else, too. A little more on the personal side for listeners that have been longtime listeners of our programs here on WGN. Carl and Leona Nelson. 
are going to celebrate 65 years of marriage, and that will take place on Saturday, October 20th, from 1.30 to 4 p.m. in Polo, Illinois. Congratulations to Carl and Leona, who have been big promoters of agriculture and family agriculture, and we wish them a happy anniversary. Max Armstrong standing by with Dale Durkholz to talk about markets, and we'll get to that China-U.S. Phase 1 agreement reached uh, on Friday in Washington. But uh, stand by. Max and his guests will join us when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Sitting down to the studio with us this week after the release of the October crop report was longtime economist and commodity analyst Dale Durkholz. He's on Twitter, grain underscore cycles is how you find him there. But I talked with him first about this harvest season. After a challenging, challenging planting season, a challenging, challenging growing season, now a downright nasty harvest for many producers. And this week we got some numbers from Uncle Sam. Yeah, and they're going to be numbers that some people are going to sit there and go, how can that be? You know, the corn yield number we got out on the report this week, up two-tenths of a bushel, 1684 Put the production number just up at uh, under 13.8 billion. The bean number, they're probably going to say, yeah, it's probably a more appropriate 46.9 bushel on the yield, taking that down roughly about a bushel from where we were a month ago and taking the production down to 35.50. But there are going to be an awful lot of people going to look at that corn number and go, how can that be? This will just add to the disappointment, the concern, the anger that some farmers have experienced watching USDA reports this year. You know, yeah, it will, but I think the one thing we've got to understand in here with the reports today, you know, our harvest number here of recent was like 13 14%, both for corn and beans. I don't remember which was which. In USDA's process, there's two parts to that production report we get every month. What they collect in the field, the data they get there, then also the input they get from farmers, and farmers' numbers are going to be based on their experience. So with very little of the crop harvested, Farmers don't have much experience, and I go back and relate to things that happened in 2009 still as somewhat of a guideline. Looking at the harvest progress, when you looked at those numbers and compared them with average, when the report came out this past Monday, it wasn't that far off average. Now, as we progress over the next couple of weeks, that gap is going to widen significantly, isn't it? Oh, it it will, although, you know, it's amazing, you know, the corn crop coming in, you know, the kind of numbers that you hear even on moisture, you know, surprisingly uh, not all that high at this particular point. But one of the things you step back and you look at with corn instead of looking at the harvest number, because we are just beginning, it's looking at where the USDA numbers are as percent of the crop that is rated as mature. We're down at the lowest levels we've had in history. So, I mean, harvest from this point forward is going to be slow to ramp up, as you say, although soybean harvest, I think, is going to be a little quicker. What else jumped out of the numbers USDA released this week? Well, when you look at it, you know, when you you think about the numbers we had there, you go into the supply demands naturally because production numbers were a bit of a surprise to people coming in higher than they expected on corn. Um, They actually raised the feed consumption number, both old crop and new crop. Basically, that ties back into, and it's feed and residual, I should say, that ties back into the stocks number we had here about 10 days ago now that really came in surprisingly low. So it says, 
you know, either feed demand was better than expected last year. I think part of it was last year's crop maybe still a little bit overestimated. But that feed consumption possibly looking better, I think, was behind, you know, the increase in the feed demand number we had here. The bean number, we took the the ending stocks there down under 500 million, but they really didn't tinker too much with uh, the demand numbers in there. So it was all really in the supply. But, you know, overall, you look at it, you know, beans, yeah, they're friendly numbers. Corn, it's uh, a little negative, and that was reflected in the early action. Weren't many people expecting, though, that corn feeding should be higher than what the USDA has been saying, just given the kind of production bump-up that we've seen in the nation's hog herd, this expansion where the pork producers got a little bit ahead of themselves on the global demand into China? Well, even if you look beyond the hogs, which are correct there, I mean, the hog numbers, and we just had a report out here also 10 days ago, you know, that said, you know, the hog numbers, depending on category, let's say 2 to 3% up, you know, cattle on feed numbers, still relatively heavy at this point. Broiler numbers, the placements there, still running a little bit ahead of a year ago. So when you look at those grain-consuming animal units, we've got plenty of mouths to feed out there. There's no doubt about it. And so, you know, the feed numbers themselves, you know, I think that's pretty appropriate. Some people in the early take, when they looked at that corn stocks number, for example, went, wow, last year's crop must have been still overestimated by quite a bit. And I said, back up a little bit here. Part of that's probably over in the feed at this point, and you just can't can't really define how much. What else uh, is on your mind right now in terms of crop size and crop demand? You know, I, I think the big thing people got to gotta look at and they got to think about is, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, going back to the 2009 experience, you know, from August to September, October, you know, or not 2009, 1993, from August to September to uh, October, you know, those corn yield numbers in 93 came down a little bit. But the big drop down came in November and also in the final. And in other words, you know, we've got a real slow harvest at this point like we had then. And we really don't know what's out there when we go into the field. Uh, when you look, go back, and the only thing I can relate to the pro-farmer numbers, uh, the ear size actually that they counted back at the end of August was about, two and a half percent smaller than last year now that's just circumference and length you know didn't have anything to do with kernel size counterbalancing that though the time from pollination to maturity on corn actually is a little little bit longer than last year and also up near the highest levels we've had of recent years beans on the other hand are time from bloom to dropping leaves is a lot smaller. So I think there's probably still some more room for downside as far as looking at the bean yield is concerned at this point. It will be interesting when I get time to start looking in the murky details of USDA reports because they give us the year counts, they give us the, the pod counts, and we can start to look at what we can see in those numbers ahead and also thinking about the implied ear weights, pod weights. Is an acreage shock yet to come or are we still... You know, comfortable with numbers that have been uh, circulating there. Well, we made some minor adjustments in beans, really didn't so much in corn. And, you know, we're far enough along with uh, the FSA accumulation of data. I think NAS is pretty comfortable with their acreage numbers, although we may get a small adjustment come January. But I think the acreage numbers, they're pretty well set. I have to ask you about field losses. 
I mean, if you look at the, the social media stuff that's been circulating here this week, while there were some great harvest activities going on, uh, you know, right across uh, east central Illinois, even there, I, I saw some downed corn video, but that that stuff out of western Canada in the canola fields and uh, some areas of Minnesota and the Dakotas, that's just downright ugly, the effort to get that out of there. How much ultimately at the end of the day is going to be left out there in the field. Yeah. Will, will it be meaningful for once? Yeah, and up there in the Northern Plains and in the Canadian prairies, they've got an added problem to deal with. It's called a lot of snow. There were some places in Northern North Dakota they were talking about up to three foot of snow. Crops you don't know, look kind of, good in woo, snow. No. You know, uh, we are going to end up with more field losses. You know, stock quality isn't all that great at this point in time. You know, and the longer we delay it and the weather you know, if it's not real cooperative, create some problems. So they'll jump up a little bit. What a lot of people don't understand, USDA ultimately measures that. Uh, once a field that their enumerators keep going back to during the summer and during the fall to collect data from, once that field gets harvested, they go out and throw down a grid and they count every kernel of corn, beans, whatever in that grid that they come down with. And they actually measure field loss at that point, and that gets incorporated when we get into these last two reports, the final one in particular. But you are right about the weather and the lateness of harvest, you know, field loss and the quality of some of the stocks and corn, for example. It's going to be an issue this year, I think. It's going to bump up. How much, we don't know, because we don't have any good data to guide us on that. Quickly, just a comment about South America. I, I saw some comment the other day that in Argentina, it's not just a, a matter of watching planting season weather, but politics may come in and skew the plantings a little bit this year. Yeah, it's really kind of changed. You know, everybody's really trying to figure out, you know, where to go forward down there as far as producers with the political situation. And there is an election coming up here pretty soon, too. So, you know, they're all trying to second guess how things are going to react. They're also looking at, you know, the amount of money that, that the government retains out of and the amount of taxes that, that are retained. You know, so I, I think we're going to see the Argentine farmer that through the last two or three years had started to expand and move back into corn. Mm -hmm. I think he's probably going to go back into his tried and true and try to manage the beans, especially if we do get a change in political leadership down there. But, it's, you know, I look at Argentina, it's just one country, you know, I think back 40, 50, 60 years, 60 years ago, how good they were and how well they could produce stuff. And today, the challenges they still have them politically to try to figure out how to fit into the world. You ask the farmers down there when you visit with them, and they'll tell you, oh, if we just, if we could just get it all together politically. And there is a lot of potential there, by all means. <laughs> you know, and that says, on the bright side of that, let's look just north into Brazil. We seem to be seeing a, a political change there that, that does people are somewhat excited about down there. And they're somewhat more comfortable with. Things are getting done. They hadn't been getting done before. So that's going to be one to keep an eye on, too. Yeah, but I want to come back to your word choice. You said the bright side. Well, you mean if you're a Brazilian producer? Yeah. <laughs> Let's remember we have that concern, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere. Good to see you. Uh, it's always, always good sir. to be here. Dale Durkholz, Grain Cycles. Today, our tour of Pioneer Soybean Development has taken us here. I'm entering one of the growth chambers at the Johnston, Iowa campus. The door's closing. This room is carefully regulated for temperature, light, humidity. I'm in a huge, long, tube-like chamber filled with soybean plants. They keep it pretty dim in here. 
This is just one phase of a multi-year process to bring the strongest seeds to market, such as the famed Pioneer brand A-Series soybeans. Depending on what happens in here, Pioneer breeders may advance these contenders to the next phase, or not. Most of the soybeans in this room won't make it into a Pioneer bag, but the ones that do are designed to be the best-performing soybeans ever introduced by Pioneer. Growth chambers, another thing that makes Pioneer, Pioneer. You'll hear more from me later. For now, let your local Pioneer sales representative hear from you. It is six minutes before six o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, and there's no question that the U.S.-China trade discussions in Washington were the dominant factor in markets from Wall Street to feedlots to soybean fields this week. It had an impact on price movement. And all in all, the end of the trading week yesterday in the grain market at the Chicago Board of Trade, not a bad finish for the week. We had the December wheat contract up 16.5 cents yesterday, $5.08 a bushel. December corn up 18 cents at 3.97 and 3 quarters. November soybeans up 10 and 3 quarters cents, ending the week at $9.36. And uh, livestock futures at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange yesterday. December lean hog contract up a dollar thirty-seven cents a hundredweight, ending the week at sixty-nine dollars sixty cents. October live cattle up seventy-seven cents, ending at a hundred nine dollars forty-five cents a hundredweight. October feeder cattle, however, only up a nickel, ending the week at a hundred forty-four dollars ten cents a hundredweight. Not a bad finish in the marketplace to this week. And, uh, of course, today is Columbus Day. It will not have much impact on the market on Monday, except the Columbus Day observance will uh, close the bond market. Other markets will be open on Monday. So now let's look at what happened yesterday in the White House in Washington, where the United States and China agreed to the first phase of a deal to end the trade war. It prompted President Trump to suspend a threatened tariff hike, but officials said the agreement had to be put on paper and more work required to get it finalized. The partial accord covering agriculture, currency, and some aspects of intellectual property protections represented the biggest step toward resolution of that 15-month tariff war between China and the United States. The announcement, however, did not include many details, and the president said it would take up to five weeks to get the deal written. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said, we will not sign an agreement unless we get and can tell the president that this is on paper. The two sides gathered with the president at the White House and with Chinese Vice Premier Liu He sitting across the desk from the president in the Oval Office. The president told reporters the two sides were very close to ending their trade dispute. He said, there was a lot of friction between the United States and China. Now it's a love fest, and that's a good thing. And uh, this conversation coming after two days of negotiation that involved the Chinese delegation and the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, 
And Mnuchin said that the president had agreed not to proceed with a hike in tariffs to 30%. That would be up from the current 25% on about $250 billion in Chinese goods. And that was supposed to have gone into effect on Tuesday. But the trade representative said the president had not made a decision about tariffs that were subject to go into effect in December. When asked about those tariffs, the president said, I think that we're going to have a deal that's a great deal that's beyond tariffs. So that's where we are now. And uh, apparently the president and Chinese president Xi Jinping are now scheduled to attend the November 16 summit of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Countries in Santiago, Chile. And it's expected that the two leaders will continue their conversations at that event next month. So that's pretty much the summary. We're still now waiting for details. And as you heard, it uh, will probably take five weeks to get it all down in writing. But at least it's more positive than it has been for several months going on a year or more that we've been involved in this tariff trade situation with China. And the National Pork Producers Council said that uh, they were pleased with the agreement that uh, China had agreed to some agricultural concessions and the U.S. would provide some tariff relief. Pork producers, of course, are looking forward to shipping a lot of U.S. pork to China in light of the decimation of the Chinese pig herd, down as much as 55%, according to some experts. Well, that's our time here on this Saturday morning show. 